You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. for this evening is Mark um, 9 verses 30 through 37. If you want to take a minute to find that in your Bible um, or on your phone, I'm going to do the same thing. And then when you're ready, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, it's Mark 9, 30 through 37. says they went on from there and passed through Galilee Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he is killed after three days he will rise but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him and they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house he asked them What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here, and we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. And we're doing something a little strange. We're looking at it backwards uh, because I thought that it would kind of help to see the story afresh if you look at it backwards. I've kind of imagined a director, um, some great director making the movie of the Gospel of Mark or the story of Jesus and just picking out certain vignettes. Um, You know, uh, if Terrence Malick made it, it would have like really amazing music. It would have these voiceover whispers, you know, spoken uh, and, you know, just incredible background of scenes of nature, great cinematography. Uh, I just think about it, like a 90-minute film of the life of Jesus uh, done uh, backwards, where you start with the resurrection, and then you see the cross, and then it kind of fades out, and then you see the scene of the Last Supper. And then we looked at the return last week. We said that would be kind of like a, a dream sequence, a fast-forward sequence of the very end of all time, that he was having this discussion uh, with the disciples. And that was all during the, the final week of his life. All those things that I just mentioned were all little stories in the final week of his life. This time, I think there should be 
some little scene where uh, he, t- he teaches the ethics of the kingdom. I would say that's got to be in the, in the film because you can't really understand the, the Jesus event um, without understanding this basic ethical teaching, which I think we see in this passage. And um, it gives you the shape of the whole kingdom of God. And it's generated by what happens at the end. So we as readers looking backwards get to see what the disciples didn't see which is what he's talking about in that passage that Haley just read is going to actually happen. And we're going to look at what happened. Like we know now that we've looked at the cross and the resurrection, how it all turns out. The disciples didn't know and it freaked them out. And we're going to talk about that because they did not understand what he was talking about. They were so afraid they wouldn't even ask a question about it. But we know now, having seen the story of the resurrection and the cross, what Jesus is talking about here. And what he's talking about is an entirely new upside down kingdom. Uh, We talk about this in our church a lot, the empire and the kingdom, Uh, the empire being the rule of the principalities and powers over every great civilization, every great country like America, wherever there's power, uh, the power is wielded by the empire, uh, by these unseen spirits and by powerful figures, uh, both financial and political, cultural powers. And together they form this thing that uh, I talk a lot about called, I call the empire. Because in the statue of Daniel chapter, um, I believe it's chapter 2, there's a statue where it has all these empires, Babylon, Assyria, uh, Greece, Rome, and they're all one statue. It's all one gigantic power. It's ruled by the evil one, uh, you know, the Lord of Mordor, if you will. It's, it's ruled by the, the great Satan. And what Jesus does, he comes into this empire of power, which is like a pyramid, a pyramid scheme and he just flips it upside down and the the disciples cannot even handle what he's talking about because it it does not compute with their empire brains Um, so I want to look at and this is what um, this one historian uh, named John Dixon who I really enjoy his book bullies and saints it's a great description of Christian uh, both failures the bullies and then also successes with the saints and he kind of goes through church history and shows you examples of each but he says Jesus came And he sang a new song that no one had ever sung before. And the song was the song of the kingdom, which is the, um, the, he calls it the humility revolution, the humility revolution. And uh, no one ever had this idea before and no one had ever lived it out before. And certainly no one ever died that way, especially not like a God. This God would come and die that way. So I want to look at the empire pyramid and the kingdom that he flips upside down. And it's kind of a, it's not the best image, but in a way it does work. I thought about a funnel Maybe even the kind of a funnel you have in the kitchen, like a kitchen utensil that's like a big red plastic funnel, and you, you pour things into that. Or the kind you put in your car when you're putting oil in your car, like that paper funnel. And it's kind of like um, cheap and tawdry and wouldn't seem like uh, worthy of the kingdom, but that's the whole point. It, it would be a red plastic funnel that he's talking about. It would not be this ornate, um, gaudy like empire. It's the opposite. So the funnel of the kingdom and the empire pyramid. Uh, so first of all, uh, the pyramid, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Verse 31. Um, this is astonishing to them. They don't know what, what he's talking about. We know what he's talking about because we've already seen that scene. But they don't know what he's talking about. And they're so shocked by it. And they're so appalled by this teaching um, that they are afraid to even ask him what he means. So in verse 32, so they do not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask. I don't think they were afraid because they didn't want to look stupid. That might have been part of it. No one in a class wants to ask, like, teacher, what are you talking about? They didn't want to ask because they didn't want to look stupid. They also didn't even want to talk about it. They didn't want to think about it. 
And I thought about um, this movie that I've been raving about lately, Don't Look Up, which I know has its flaws. So I know some of you saw it and you didn't like it. It has flaws, no doubt about that. It's heavy-handed. But it's amazing at depicting this very thing. The, the, the length to which the human mind will go to deny what it knows to be true. And he has just said this hard thing, and they can't, they just deny it. They're like, no. So in Don't Look Up, uh, early on in the movie, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is a scientist, Jennifer Lawrence, co-scientists. They appear on Good Morning America, kind of. It's called The Daily Rip. It's like a takeoff on live with Kelly and Ryan. And uh, you have these two hosts, and they have these, it's like one of those, like, you know, light news, kind of news light um, morning shows. And um, the, the, the people who are the two anchors, um, they're like, oh yeah, so tell us what you found. And they're like, well, uh, the, the world's going to be destroyed in um, six months by a comet. And there's 100% certainty that's going to happen. And then the, the, the hosts are like, they start to laugh and make playful banter and kind of remark on the physical attractiveness on, of the two scientists. And they just... They cannot handle it. And the audience kind of laughs, their uncomfortable laughter, and they just kind of move on. And then on people on like Twitter and um, you know, on social media start posting about how Jennifer Lawrence uh, is kind of weird and freaks out, and then Leonardo DiCaprio is kind of this oddly handsome scientist. But the point is they just can't handle the reality that has just been told to them. The earth is going to be destroyed. And the there are some things that are so terrifying and unthinkable that we simply change the subject. And the disciples do that here because they can't handle the truth. In fact, they not only change the subject, they, they assert the exact opposite of what he was just saying. So in an effort to stave off the truth, they simply assert the opposite of what they fear the most. And it's just this classic line in verse 34 they argued with one another about who was the greatest. That comes right after his prediction of his death. They start to argue about who's the greatest. So think about the mindset here. Uh, he just said, I'm going to die. And they start talking to each other, like, and they're saying, we're too important to die. Like, one of, like, we're, I'm, too, I'm, too, I'm too essential to, to the mission of Jesus to die. And I, in fact, I am, I am the greatest among all of us. It's the, they jump right back into the empire mindset. He's just told them about the kingdom and they jump right to the empire. It's kind of like if somebody told you you have, you have cancer, you have something, some serious disease, and then you go and run 10 miles just to kind of show that's not true. You just kind of don't want to talk about it. You don't want to think about it. You just go, go run to kind of prove it's not true. Or someone says, you know, your marriage is in big trouble. You go to a marriage counselor, your marriage is in big trouble. And then you kind of you book a romantic weekend in Paris just to show it's not the case. It can't be true. You know, we do this all the time. What were you discussing along the way? Verse 33. And they should have said, oh, we were discussing our inexpressible horror of dying that you just talked about. But instead they say, uh, we were wondering who, who is number one. Who among us is most important? Um, which actually makes a lot of sense in the ancient world. And this is where we have to put our mind um, before the Jesus revolution took place, before the humility revolution took place, in the ancient world, uh, one of the great virtues was what they called uh, philotomia, uh, which means a love of honor. And temerity is a word that we use today still that means excessive confidence or boldness or audacity. And the goal in the ancient world was to be the great, the great man, because it was always men fighting for this. It was to be the great man. Uh, this is what Nietzsche was talking about, you know, the Ubermensch, the man uh, of greatness who, riot, who is uh, king of the hill and has, um, has transcended all rivals and has now become one who should be lauded and praised and honored. 
And so the goal is to get to the top of the pyramid and to get as many people underneath you as possible who will adore you and admire you and will serve you. And, and that's exactly what the empire celebrated. Like we have a hard time admiring uh, people who are in power, especially if they boast, especially if they're um, blatant about the fact that they want to be served by multiple people. We are inherently kind of suspicious of that. But back then, they, they thought that was what we should all be striving for. That was just the way things were. And humility to them was degrading. And it was contemptible. So Augustus Caesar is the best example of this. Um, he built this huge tomb for himself. He was the great Caesar, Caesar of Caesars. Lived right before Jesus came. Um, and by the way, this is not just the Roman Empire. Okay, This would apply to all... Civilizations of great power. This is, this is just the human heart. This is the way that we live. This is our, this is our de facto mindset. So Augustus is a great example of this. Uh, he built this gigantic tomb for himself, a mausoleum, for when he was going to die, because he thought he was a god, and he was treated as a god. So he builds this tomb, which is like a cone. It's 150 feet high, it's 300 feet wide. They've recently restored it in Italy, in Rome. And at the top, of course, of this mausoleum is a huge statue of himself. And inscribed in bronze, it goes through his 25 greatest accomplishments. Um, It talks about his military victories, his public awards, his gifts to the city, his building projects, his civic games. And then in case you missed the point, at the end it says, all of this on account of my courage, clemency, justice, and piety. And... You know, I would never build that for myself, um, but I wouldn't mind if somebody else did after I died. Like, I really honestly would not mind if such a thing existed after I died. And today, if, um, if, if President Biden were to say, I am setting aside a million dollars for a building project in my honor, which will be when I die, this gigantic um, you know, building right on the mall that will commemorate the greatness of Joe Biden. I mean, do you, people would just howl. Uh, they would scream. Because um, we don't accept uh, Philotimea anymore. Because Jesus has conquered. Because like we sang in that song, he, he is alive, he is risen, and he has defeated in many ways the empire. Because we just don't accept Augustus Caesar anymore. I mean, what the empire calls love of honor, C.S. Lewis says, is pride. It is the essential vice. It is the utmost evil. And Bob Dylan has a song about it called The Disease of Conceit. That self-conceit and arrogance are a disease that will destroy you. They will bear you from your head to your feet by the disease of conceit. Lewis says there is no fault which makes a person more unpopular and which we are less aware of in ourselves. Um, Because pride or arrogance is something that we cannot see in ourselves. And yet, as soon as we see it in someone else, we hate it. We despise it. When we get around somebody else who's proud, uh, we just... We just we want them out of our out of our presence. Lewis says, "The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others." So the way you know you're proud is if you really can't stand someone else who's proud. Then you know that you're proud. If you're humble, you don't care if somebody around you is proud. And a lot of times uh, we cloak this as a virtue. I just want to be my best self. I want to be the best version of me. I want to be my ideal self. But you know, often that's just arrogance disguised as I want to be the best self. I want to be number one. I want to beat out all my competitors. And here's the test. The test is, are you satisfied that you've achieved your best self, your self-actualized, when your colleague is still above you? 
And if you're not satisfied at that point, then you know you've fallen into pride and arrogance. If you can celebrate your friend's superiority over you, then you're good. But I doubt that many of us can. And so that's the first point, the empire pyramid. And here's the interesting thing again. Just want to highlight this fact that Augustus could not get away with this anymore. And that's the beauty of what Jesus has done. That even Donald Trump, who came the closest, honestly, of any president I've seen to actually saying, I am the greatest, you know, he was somebody really willing to almost get out there. And I think in some ways, that's what people admired about him because he was just blatantly proud and arrogant. And he's just like, I I am the greatest. And even Donald Trump could could not get away with that um, in our day, in our day and age. If Tom Brady on Tuesday when he retired had tweeted, I am the goat, um, I am the greatest of all time people would start to hate Tom Brady. But as it is, we all say, yeah, he's the greatest of all time. You can't say that anymore because the funnel of the kingdom, the humility revolution, that now we know whether we, be- whether we actually behave this way or not, um, we all have to, we have to kind of keep up this appearance that um, we believe in humility. We believe in humility. And I would challenge anyone who really doesn't identify as a Christian, uh, I would just challenge you and say, will you act like one? You act like one. So it's worth considering whether the claims of Christianity are true if you're already acting. If you're already following him, then why not go ahead and say who he is? He is the one to be followed. He is the master. Because the, the, the fact is almost no one. I mean, Hitler was one person who like, yeah, he did not act like a Christian. He just said he, he is the Fuhrer. You know, that, that's, a, that's a person who did, did not. Act. And, and Nietzsche was another. Frederick Nietzsche. the great. But for the most part. We all are following Christ simply by living in the humility revolution that he started. And that's the second point. He called uh, the 12 in verse 35 and he sat down. When he sits down, class is in session. They've now come into Capernaum. They're probably in Peter's house. That was kind of the home base. They've come all the way down from Mount Hermon through Caesarea Philippi. Long trip. They've been talking to each other. And he's not even mad at them. Uh, He doesn't even rebuke them. Uh, he, he's not surprised at all by what's ho- happening to them. Uh, but he also is not pulling any punches. And so he tells them very directly, verse 35, he asked them, what have you been talking about? They say, we've been talking about who's the greatest. Then he says, if anyone would be first, then he must be the last of all and the servant of all. He must be the, in my kingdom. I am, I am changing the rules of how life is to be played. And in the kingdom of God, Those who would be first must be the last and the servant of all. In the empire, to get to the top, you get as many people as possible underneath you to serve you and adore you. That's the the game. In the kingdom, we are jumping into this gigantic 100-foot red funnel and going to the bottom, sliding down to where Christ is at the bottom to admire and serve as many people as possible. Jesus is like, jump in and slide. And that's what, the, that's what the guy who founded all this, the Moravians, that's exactly what he did. Um, one of the greatest uh, saints in Christian history. And when I say saint, I mean one who was sanctified by God. His name was Nicholas von Zinzendorf, if you don't know him. And there was a hotel in Winston-Salem called the Zinzendorf in his honor. And he was this prominent Austrian nobleman living in 1720. And he was destined for this illustrious career in law and politics He was going to be a great man. He's going to be a powerful man. And so he visits Copenhagen in 1731, 
And he meets this, uh, this man from the West Indies who is a, a former slave. And he begins to talk to this man, and this man has become a Christian. And so uh, he is converted by this interaction with this Christian uh, from the West Indies. And then Zinzendorf's life verse became John 3.30, I must uh, become less and he must become greater. That was his life verse. And he started to live communally with his servants on his estate, like Leo Tolstoy did. He began to live on his estate uh, back in, in Moravia. Uh, he began to live communally with his servants and actually began to share a lot of wealth. And they prayed, all, they prayed constantly. Uh, you know, they, they started the 24-7 prayer meeting idea. And they prayed and prayed for, uh, I think, over a year, constantly. And um, they started to send out missionaries all over the world to go and die. And here's his, here's his greatest line, Zinzendorf. He says, and I've seen a t-shirt with this on. It says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Exactly the opposite of Caesar Augustus. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Of course, he's not forgotten because I'm talking about him. And shortly, um, shortly after hearing about this new community in Bethania, North Carolina, he died, which is us. This is where, in, in many ways, the city of Winston-Salem uh, and Bethania was where it first started, which is like 10 miles north. But it's, it's the, the spirit of Zinzendorf. To some extent, it abides even in Winston-Salem. So that's the, that's the funnel. Uh, verse 36, he took a child, put the child in their midst, and took the child in his arms. So it was, um, got a picture of that. This is very uncommon for a rabbi who is teaching to have a child in the room. The children would be asked to leave, and actually the women would be asked to leave. So the synagogue is just men, and the rabbi is teaching. But in this case, he's like, no, no, bring, bring the little, and this is a little child because he can hold it in his arms. So it's a little child. It's like, let me, let me have the little child. I want you guys to picture this. I want you to have an object lesson for what I'm talking about. And so he takes this little child, and takes it in his arms, puts it down right in their midst, and like, in our kingdom, he is the model. This is what we're going for. This child who is humble and content and has absolutely no desire to be number one. Could not care less about being number one. How many children do you talk to that just want to be the best? They want to be number one. They want to be better than everyone. They haven't started to think that way. Just like all pastors, right? All pastors could care less if we're number one. Uh, we're so humble, um, like Mark Driscoll. Uh, we don't care how big our churches are. Um, and of course, that's in me. That's, that's in all of us. But in Mark ten thirteen, when the disciples are trying to stop the little children from coming to the master, he says, let the children come to me. Uh, stop hindering them because my kingdom belongs to them. And you're supposed to be like them. You're supposed to be humble like them. And now he takes it a step further in verse 37. He doesn't just make it about him. He makes it about his father. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. If you welcome a child like that into, into your midst, you're receiving me because I am like that child. And not only are you receiving me who is like that child, you're receiving the father who is a humble father like that child. And so the test about whether this is the father's house this is where it kind of gets difficult and uncomfortable, is who is honored here? Who is received here? Uh, who is treated with um, dignity and respect and admired here? And is it someone who is rich and powerful and beautiful and charming and charismatic and cool and hip? Is that who we honor? 
Is that who you want to be with and are drawn to? Or is it those who cannot further your agenda? As a child could not. Someone who cannot lift you higher up the pyramid. Are you mostly uh, fraternizing with people who can kind of boost you up and lift you up the empire? Or are you intentionally going to people that would not do that for you, that would in, in no way do that for you? And that's the test of are you in the Father's house? Is this the Father's house? That's what Jesus is saying. Are we in the Father's house? Uh, in Hillsong Church, New York City, um, they escorted VIPs to the front of the church. There was a, there was a roped off section, and so like when Justin Bieber would come in, they would bring him down to the front so everybody could see him. Kevin Durant came down, Tyson Chandler, they'd bring him down to the front. This was the VIP section. So they could all see how great Hillsong Church was. And I thought about James. If you read the letter of James, can you imagine James coming into the Hillsong Church? I would love for James to have walked into the Hillsong Church and just uh, start throwing chairs around or microphones on the stage. Billy Joel, on the other hand, before his concert starts, he's like, I want you to go out and find the people who cannot pay. Uh, the working class people, the poor people who are out there who want to get in and they cannot pay. And I want you to bring them on the front row. So every time he has this front row set aside for those people who can't pay. And the question is, which of those two has a concert or a venue that is most like the Father's house? And that's what I want our church to be. Uh, Something like the Father's house. It's centered on a table. Every house is centered on a table. And every table has certain rituals. We always have these rituals at a meal. And at this meal, we act out the drama of verse 31. The son of man, the great one, the exalted one, he will be delivered into the hands of men. He's going to come sliding down the funnel and he's going to be killed and buried and crucified. And then he will rise. He will be exalted by his, because he's the only man who will ever be worshipped. The only human being that will ever be worshipped on this planet is the slave of all. He called himself the slave of all. The crucified one. No one else will ever be worshipped but him. The only human being to ever be worshipped. And so servanthood and self-giving love is exalted at the table. It's exalted. And humility and self-forgetfulness are cherished. Remember, we love these rascals.